Having pronounced a woe oracle against the false teachers in Jude 11 to 13, Jude now looks back to the past for a prophecy about the future in verses 14 to 16. In verse 14, Jude looks back to Enoch's prophecy about the second coming of Christ. He then provides three reasons for the second coming in verse 15, to execute judgment upon all, to convict the ungodly of their works, and to convict the ungodly of their words. These three reasons form the ninth triad of this epistle. Finally, in verse 16, Jude provides three more charges against the false teachers. They complain and grumble, they follow their lust, they speak arrogant and flattering words. These three charges form the tenth triad of Jude's epistle. So just by way of review, we've got ten triads so far. Verse 1, three actions of God, called, loved, and kept. Verse 2, three blessings on saints, mercy, peace, and love. Verse 4, three charges against false teachers, crept in unaware, turn grace and licentiousness, deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 5 through 7, we have three examples of judgment, Israel in the wilderness, the fallen angels in Genesis 6, and Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse 8, we have three charges against false teachers. They defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they revile angels. Then in verse 11, we had three examples of wickedness, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. In verse 12, we had three descriptions of false teachers. They're hidden reefs, selfish shepherds, and waterless clouds. In verse 13, we had three more descriptions of false teachers, autumn trees, wild waves, and wandering stars. And now in verse 15, we have three reasons for the second coming, to execute judgment on all, to convict the ungodly of their works, and to convict the ungodly of their words. And then we have three charges against false teachers in verse 16, a total of nine charges. Complain and grumble, follow their lust, and speak arrogant and flattering words. So as we turn over to Jude, verse 14, we're going to begin by looking back at Enoch's prophecy. We're going to look back at Enoch's prophecy. Again, the theme of verses 14 to 16 is looking back to look forward. Now Jude begins verse 14 by revealing his purpose in looking back at Enoch's prophecy. These men. It was these men whom Jude identified as the defendants of his woe oracle. In verse 8, he revealed that these men defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile angelic majesties. It is these men who are the certain persons crept in unnoticed. And as previously noted, these certain persons are false teachers. St. Jude's point now is that almost 4,000 years before he writes his epistle, Enoch issued a prophecy that directly impacts these men, these false teachers. So let's read verse 14. It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied. Let's begin with Enoch's identity here. Enoch's identity. Again, we're looking back at Enoch's prophecy. Now, before getting into the specifics of the prophecy, Jude identifies that Enoch is the seventh generation from Adam. Now, Enoch is the seventh generation from Adam in Seth's genealogy. And we want to make a note here that genealogical records, Jewish genealogical records, are inclusive. So Adam counts as generation one. Seth would be generation two, and so on, until we come to Enoch. 
Now, Enoch is a contemporary to Lamach, who was the seventh generation from Adam in Cain's genealogy. And these two cousins could not be more opposite. Lamach murdered a man and boasted that he was more significant than God. In contrast, Enoch walked with God. Genesis 5.24, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Now the term walked, halak, emphasizes fellowship and communion with God. The phrase walked with God implies to us or indicates that Enoch enjoyed intimacy or fellowship with God by living his life according to God's will. See, walking with God is fellowship precipitated upon obedience to God's commands. Leviticus 26, verse 3 and 12. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. See, walking with God results in divine favor. He will walk or fellowship with us, and we will be his people. The question I want to pose here is this. Are you walking with God? Are you walking with God? Are you fellowshipping with God? Now, your answer may be, yes, oh, I'm fellowshipping with God. Well, then let me ask this. Are you obeying his commands? Because if you're not in obedience to him, you're not in fellowship with him. So that's something you want to examine. And if you're not obeying his commands, then you're sinning, your fellowship is broken, and you need to invoke 1 John 1, 9. Confess your sins and have that fellowship restored. Now additionally, walking with God implies reconciliation. As Amos 3.3 states, do two men walk together unless they have made an agreement? See, because of sin, there is an enmity between God and humanity. That Enoch walked with God implies that he and God were agreed. Hence, the enmity that had been between them was removed. They were now reconciled. And so, if we want to have fellowship with God, we need to be reconciled with God. And reconciliation only happens when a person repents of their sin, turns to God, and puts their faith, their trust, their belief in the gospel. That Jesus Christ died, shed blood, buried, rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So it's only by salvation that we can be reconciled to God. So... Walking with God, our fellowship with God, is conditioned upon two things. First, we're reconciled. And secondly, we're obedient. Now, as a result of walking with God, the text tells us that Enoch was not. Now, that phrase, he was not, translates the Hebrew term chayin, meaning disappeared. Enoch disappeared because God took him. And that term took, lakah, means to take, to seize, or to snatch away. According to the Aramaic translations of Genesis, the Targum Jonathan and the Targum Ankalas, Enoch was caught up into heaven alive. The idea that Enoch did not die but was translated into heaven is not solely the commentary of translators. 
but the testimony of Scripture. Hebrews 11.5, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Now the phrase taken up so that he would not see death in Hebrews 11.5 explains the quote from Genesis 5.24. He was not found because God took him up. The term taken up there in Hebrews 11.5, metatithemi, means to be caught up or raptured. Ergo, Enoch disappeared from the earth because God raptured him into heaven. Interestingly, God raptured Enoch before his wrath was poured out on the earth in the form of the flood. And God's reason for rapturing Enoch is also explained in Hebrews 11.5. He was pleasing to God. Now, what does it mean that Enoch was pleasing to God? Well, Hebrews 11.6 explains, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So in order to please God, one must have faith. Faith begins with believing in God, i.e. his person and nature, and his word, i.e. his law. In turn, those who have faith seek God. Now, seek here, exateo, does not mean to look for something. Instead, it means this, to turn to him, to strive humbly and sincerely to follow and obey him. See, seeking implies effort and diligence. It doesn't happen by accident. And so Enoch demonstrated his faith by diligently seeking after God. Are you striving to humbly and sincerely follow and obey God? You need to ask that question. Now, Enoch is not only a man of faith, but also the first recorded preacher in the Bible. The term prophesied, prophetuo, in Jude 14, means to tell forth or declare God's message. The terms prophet and prophecy are often misunderstood in Christian circles. As Spiros Sodiati states, A prophetess, both in the Old and New Testament, is not primarily one who foretells things to come, but who, having been taught of God, speaks out his will. See, declaring forth God's message or expounding on God's word to reveal his will is precisely what preachers do. 2 Timothy 4.2 Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So we've identified Enoch. Now let's look at Enoch's prophecy. Again, verse 14 of Jude. He prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. Now, Enoch's prophecy, beginning in Jude 14, is from the pseudographical, non-canonical book of First Enoch. And Jude used First Enoch because it was well-known and highly respected amongst both the Jewish and Christian communities. This is a truth attested to by the fact that the book is quoted or alluded to in Matthew, Luke, Romans, Hebrews, and Revelation. Under the Holy Spirit's superintendence, 
Jude attributes 1st Enoch to the Enoch of Genesis 5, making 1st Enoch one of human history's earliest records. And that 1st Enoch survived the flood indicates that Noah took it with him on the ark. Now, Jude quotes Enoch's prophecy verbatim from the Greek translation of 1st Enoch 1.9. It states, and I'll give it to you in English here, Behold, he will give, or excuse me, behold, he will arrive with ten million of the holy ones in order to execute judgment upon all. He will, will destroy the wicked ones, censure all flesh on account of everything that they have done, that which the sinners and the wicked ones committed against him. Now, if you compare the Greek of, the, of Jude to the Greek of First Enoch here, it's identical. The only change between 1 Enoch 1.9 and Jude 14 and 15 is that Jude identifies the he in Enoch's prophecy as the Lord. Jude's readers would have known that the he in Enoch's prophecy was God based on the context of 1 Enoch 1. However, by replacing the he with the Lord, curios, Jude intended for them to interpret the he, not just as God, but more specifically as Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead. Indeed, when the term Lord is used in the New Testament and applied to Jesus Christ, it's the Greek equivalent for God's Hebrew name, Yahweh. Now, Enoch's prophecy here foretells Christ's second coming. Long before the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, Enoch revealed God's plan for Christ's coming. And that he revealed this particular part of God's plan for the ages testifies to the fact that the antediluvian world had a clear understanding of God's future and final judgment on the ungodly. Now it's interesting that Jude would include a prophecy about the second coming of Christ from an era so close to creation in light of Peter's accusation of the false teachers mocking the return of Christ. 2 Peter 3, 3-4 Knowing this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning. Now notice here that Enoch in his prophecy says that the Lord came. Now, the verb came, erkomai, is translated as a past tense in English because it's in the aorist tense in the Greek. However, came is what is known as a proleptic or futuristic aorist. A futuristic aorist verb describes an event that has not yet occurred as though it has already occurred. It's used to stress the certainty of the event. Hence, Christ return is both inevitable and sure. So there's no doubt that Christ is going to return. Now, from the vantage point of Enoch, he did not know that Christ's coming would be in two parts, a first and second advent. Even the latter Old Testament prophets had difficulty distinguishing between Christ's coming to save and his coming to judge. However, from our New Testament vantage point, as biblical expositors, we can distinguish between Christ's two coming. Indeed, we are currently living between the two comings. 
Now, in order to determine which coming Enoch was referring, the text must be considered. The Iconian, excuse me, the Enochian prophecy states here, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. So we ask, who are the holy ones? In Deuteronomy 33.2, the title Holy Ones refers to the angels who appeared with Yahweh on Mount Sinai when he gave the law. The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. Later, the prophet Zechariah prophesied that Yahweh would come in the future with his holy ones to fight the nations. Zechariah 14.5 Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Zechariah's prophecy bears a striking similarity to Enoch's. Jesus also applied these prophecies to himself in Matthew 25, 31, stating that he would return with his angels. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. As well, Paul taught that when Christ returns, he will come with his angels to judge the world. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, 8. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, it can be stated with certainty that these holy ones refer to angels and that Christ's second coming is in view. Christ's first coming didn't come with a myriad of angels. He didn't come in flaming fire and he didn't come to judge. Now, we should also note here that along with the angels, believers will return with Christ. Revelation 17, 14, these will wage war against the Lamb. The Lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are called the chosen uh, and faithful. And then Revelation 19, 14, and the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Now, the believers who return with Christ are the called, chosen, and faithful. They're the church-age saints. But the armies which are in heaven is a reference to the angels. And that's the context that Enoch is referring to. So looking back to Enoch's prophecy, we can be assured that Jesus Christ is going to return. That Christ is going to return with his saints, with us, presupposes that we are in heaven. Indeed, before Christ returns to earth, he will rapture believers, both the living and the dead, into heaven. 1 Corinthians 15:52 In a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump for the trumpet will sound the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. 1 Thessalonians 4:16 and 17 For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we which are who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. So we've looked back to Enoch's prophecy. Now let's look forward to the second coming's purpose. Looking forward to the second coming's purpose. Verse 15. Now Enoch's prophecy continues here in Jude 15. Glimpsing future wickedness, Enoch prophesied that the Lord would come to execute judgment. Now some 4,000 years later, it was revealed that the judgment, this judgment, had been given to the Godhead's second person, Jesus Christ. 
John 5, 27 to 30. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You see, Christ came the first time to save, but when he comes a second time, it will be to judge the world. John three seventeen. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. John 12, 47 and 48, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. Now this judgment, then, is the central theme of Enoch's prophecy. Now verse 15 tells us there are three purposes for the second coming. Three purposes for the second coming. Again, we're looking forward to the second coming's purpose. Three purposes. Let's read verse 15. To execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So Enoch's prophecy provides three purposes for Christ's second coming. To execute judgment upon all, to convict the ungodly of their works, and to convict the ungodly of their words. So let's look at that first purpose, to execute judgment upon all. The first purpose of the second coming is to execute judgment upon all. Now the verb execute here, poieo, means to carry out a course of action. Specifically, Christ will carry out this judgment upon all. Four times in this prophecy, Enoch used the, that comprehensive adjective, all, to describe the ungodly. Now ungodly does not merely mean irreligious, but it refers instead to someone who practices the opposite of God's demand. And the word ungodly is used here four times as a noun, as a verb, and as an adjective. The point of the prophecy is that no one in opposition to God and nothing that opposes God will escape his judgment. Now this judgment upon the ungodly will begin with the tribulation and conclude with the great white throne judgment. Just as God raptured Enoch before his wrath fell upon the earth in the form of the flood, so God will rapture believers from the coming judgment that will befall the ungodly. Indeed, we will be delivered from God's coming wrath. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 To wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So, next event on God's calendar, the rapture of the church. All believers, dead and alive from the time of Christ's death and resurrection, will be raptured up into heaven. Christ will descend in the air, voice of the archangel, sound of the last trumpet, boom. In a moment, twinkling of an eye. Then we have the seven-year tribulation. At the end of that seven-year tribulation, we have the return of Christ with his angels to war against the nations and to establish his kingdom. At that time, we, the believers who are raptured, will also return with him. We will escape the wrath. 
We're not going to go through the tribulation, and we're not going to be judged at the great white throne. The ungodly will have no excuse when they are judged. Both Peter and Jude have repeatedly stated that the ungodly will have no excuse because they have been warned of God's pending judgment throughout history. As well, it must be emphasized that Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 6. While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Any ungodly person who repents of their sin and believes the gospel will be saved and not face God's judgment. John 5, 24. Truly I say to you that he who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Every person needs to ask themselves, have they been delivered from death and judgment to life and honor? So the first purpose of the second coming is to execute judgment upon all. No one is going to escape. The second purpose of Christ's return, of the second coming, is to convict the ungodly of their works. Now the verb convict here, allegeco, is a judicial term meaning to prove guilty. It involves the presentation of evidence and the refuting of arguments. Indeed, when the ungodly stand before Judge Jesus Christ, the books will be opened at the great white throne. These books include the book of life and the books containing all the deeds or works that the ungodly have done. Revelation 20, 11 and 12. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. Now the book of life here is specifically the Lamb's book of life, which contains the name of every person who has repented of their sins and believed the gospel. Revelation 21, 27, Nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, the other books here contain all the deeds or works of un, an ungodly person has ever done. Jude refers to their deeds as ungodly deeds. He also notes that their ungodly deeds have been done in an ungodly way. That is, their works are in opposition to God and his laws. As well, note that Jude applies the term all to their deeds. Every deed or work done by the ungodly is ungodly. Even those things that some may perceive as good are evil in God's perception. Isaiah 64, 6. For all of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like filthy garments. John three nineteen. This is the judgment. The light has come in the world. Men love the darkness rather than light, for their deeds are evil. An ungodly heart can only produce ungodly deeds. And so the second purpose of the second coming is to convict the ungodly of their works. Now the third purpose of the second coming 
is to convict the ungodly of their words. Now specifically, Jude's referring to their words as harsh things. That phrase, harsh things, scleros, refers to those things which are offensive or arrogant. When the Greek term scleros is applied to people, it describes them as inhumane or uncivil. Hence, the words of the ungodly are offensive and uncivil, and these offensive, arrogant, uncivil words are directed against him, that is Christ. Now, Malachi 3, 13 and 14 provides an example of what harsh things the ungodly say against Christ. Malachi 3, 13 and 14. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord, yet you say, what have we spoken against you? Well, here's what they've said. It's vain to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? See, these ungodly sinners tell others that it's worthless to serve God. There's no benefit to obeying God's law and repentance for sin is unnecessary. And incredulously, this describes many in the quote-unquote church today. There's many people in the church today who claim we don't need to repent, who claim that we don't need to obey God's law, and who claim that, hey, we don't need to serve God, just do you. Well, such harsh things or arrogant words come from the heart, the seat of emotion, the seat of understanding, and the seat of your will. Matthew 12, 34. You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of what fills the heart. Matthew 15, 19, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders and adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and slanders. And my friends, Christ is going to judge every harsh or arrogant word at the great white throne. Matthew 12, 36 and 37. I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So we have three purposes for the second coming. To convict all, to judge the ungodly of their words and works. Now verse 16, we have three charges against false teachers. So we're looking forward to the second coming's purpose. There's three purposes, and now we have three charges against the false teachers. Verse 16. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Now Jude applies the term ungodly in verse 16 directly to these, that is, these men, the false teachers. Now previously, Jude had laid out six charges against the false teachers in Jude 3 and 8. Charge 1, they crept in unaware. Charge 2, they turned grace into licentiousness. Charge 3, they deny the only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Charge 4, they defile the flesh. Charge 5, they reject authority. Charge 6, they revile angelic majesties. Now, Jude announces three more charges against the false teachers. Charge 7, they complain and grumble. Charge 8, they follow their lust. Charge 9, they speak arrogant and flattering words. Now let's look at that first charge, or charge 7. The seventh charge against the false teachers is that they complain and grumble. 
Now the term grumblers here, gustes, denotes someone who is given to constant and excessive whining and complaining. Grumblers are never satisfied. Now this term does not refer to legitimate complaints, such as the neglected widows in Acts 6.1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. See, the term grumbler here now is modified by the adjective finding fault. And finding fault refers to complaining about one's lot in life and blaming others. Now, previously in verse 11, Jude dealt with the issue of grumbling and fault finding within the context of Korah's rebellion. Such individuals complain about their lot in life and then blame and criticize others for all their difficulties and disappointments. And I got word for you, God has low toleration for grumbling and fault finding. When Israel in the wilderness grumbled and found fault with God's leaders, he sent his avenging angel to destroy them. Numbers 16, 41 and 49. On the next day, all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled. But those who died by the plague were 14,700 besides those who died on account of Korah. 1 Corinthians 10.10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. That, my friends, is why God forbids us from grumbling and fault finding. Philippians 2.14 and 15, do all things without grumbling and disputing so that you'll prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Now charge eight. The eighth charge against false teachers is that they follow their lust. The verb following means to conduct oneself or live in a particular manner. Lust here are excessive and self-indulgent cravings that satisfy one's carnal appetites. In the New Testament, the term almost always refers to a bad sense of evil desire. As well, the term describes passions that displace one's proper affections for God. So when one gives in to their lust, they lose all control over their lust. And we are not, believer, to follow our lust, but instead our Lord, the Lamb of God. And then we have the ninth charge. The ninth charge against the false teachers is that they speak arrogant and flattering words. The verse speak is tied to the Greek term stoma, meaning mouth. And the idea is that when false teachers open their mouths, they speak either arrogant or flattering words. Now, the term arrogantly refers to pompous or ostentatious words. These false teachers use such pompous and ostentatious words to cover up the lack of content in their false teaching. And this is such an apt description of modern liberal preachers. Let me give you an example. Stephen Furtick lead pastor of Elevation Church, is an example of a false teacher speaking arrogantly or pompously. I want you to consider for a moment here a quote from his message entitled, My Maker is My Mirror. He states, quote, It's not how God sees me, but how I think God sees me that determines where I end up. God needed someone to show the world what he looked like or else he would have just been a concept. God would have been an abstract theory. Now, how pompous can Mr. Furtick be to pontificate such narcissistic nonsense that a person's eternal destiny is determined by how they think God sees them? 
It is also rather ostentatious to think that God is dependent upon humanity to make himself real. All this adds up to is an anthropocentric or man-centered theology. Also, notice the term flattering people, prosopon, means to admire the face. Now, it's a Greek translation of a Hebrew idiom meaning to show partiality. See, these false teachers show partiality or flatter people for the sake of self-advantage and material benefit. And let's be honest, flattery is nothing more than a trap. Proverbs 29.5 A man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his step. Now there's a difference between flattery and a compliment. Flattery's motivation is to benefit oneself, whereas a compliment's motivation is to benefit others. And God forbids his people from admiring the face or showing partiality and favoritism. Leviticus 19.15 You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great. You are to judge your neighbor fairly. And so we have three charges now, three more charges, against these false teachers. Now friends, when we look back at Enoch... We ought to see a man who walked with God and as such pleased God. Pleasing God should be our ambition. 2 Corinthians 5.9 We also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Jesus defined pleasing God as seeking first God's kingdom and righteousness. Matthew 6.33 Now we stated already that the word seek means to turn to him, to strive humbly and sincerely to follow and obey him. Furthermore, we are to seek God's kingdom and righteousness first. That term first can be translated as of greatest importance. In other words, my friends, seeking God's kingdom and righteousness is not a step one in a series of steps in pleasing God. It's of greatest importance in pleasing God. See, God's kingdom is the sphere of God's eternal rule. And irrevocably connected to his kingdom is his righteousness to which we are to strive. What's God's righteousness? It's his justice and uprightness. It's his standard to which we are to conform. Now God's righteousness is witnessed by the law and the prophets and is manifested through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans 1, 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, but as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Romans three twenty one to 22 Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. See, my friends, you only receive God's righteousness as you repent of your sin and receive by faith Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Sadly, though, we have many people today confusing spiritual dis- uh, spirituality rather, with righteousness. Now, spirituality, what is that? It's conforming yourself to various disciplines, such as studying the Bible, praying, attending church, and evangelizing. And all of these spiritual disciplines are beneficial, but they're worthless if they do not drive you to righteousness to living a life that conforms to God's person, God's nature, and God's law. See, when you see spirituality as the goal of your Christian life, 
as, your, as the goal to pleasing God, then you're going to fail miserably. Your life becomes nothing more than an outward conformity to a checklist while never attaining the righteousness of God. Matthew 5.20 I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And not only is our ambition to please God, but we need to learn or find out what is pleasing to God. Ephesians 5.10 Trying to learn what is pleasing to God. And the scripture outlines some things by which we can please God. Now it's interesting that each of these things are tied to our walk. Just as Enoch's walk was tied to his pleasing God, so too our walk is tied to pleasing God. God is pleased when we walk by faith. That is daily trust in God's purposes and plans. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. For we walk by faith, not by sight. God is pleased when we walk by the Spirit. That is, daily submitting to the control and leading of the Holy Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Galatians 5.25 God is pleased when we walk in Christ. That is, daily imitating Christ's example. Colossians 2.6 Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. And God is pleased when we walk in His ways. That's daily obeying God's commands. Deuteronomy 5.32 and 33 Observe to do just as the Lord your God has commanded you. Don't turn aside to the right or the left. You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you. And finally, God is pleased when we walk in love. That is, when we daily sacrifice ourselves for the lovable and the unlovable. Ephesians 5, 2. Walk in love. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, and offering a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So, my friend, ask yourself, are you trusting God daily? Are you daily submitting to the control and leading of the Holy Spirit? Are you daily imitating the example of Christ? Are you daily obeying his commands? Are you daily sacrificing yourself to the lovable and unlovable? If you are, then you're pleasing God. If you're not, you got some things to work on. Now, Enoch is a type of those who will be raptured when the Lord returns. He walked with the Lord, and the Lord raptured him, so that he escaped the coming wrath of God, that is the flood, and did not see death. So too, many so-called believers today think they will be raptured. Many profess to know God, but they don't walk with God. Walking with God makes all the difference. Many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Just because one professes to know the Lord does not mean they possess him as their Lord and Savior. And the difference between professing and possessing is that those who possess the Lord are walking with him. They're seeking his righteousness and his kingdom. They're striving to please him as they walk with him. Everyone who calls themselves a believer ought to seriously consider whether they're professing or possessing. To put it another way, are you talking about Jesus or are you walking with Jesus? And my friend, I'll tell you, the clearest way in which to determine if someone's just talking about Jesus is to look at these charges. Are these nine things evident in their life? 
If they are, they're ungodly. And they're not walking with God. Father in heaven, Lord, I thank and praise you for the word that you give to us. A word that cuts clear. Father, it's exciting to be able to look back all the way to Genesis and to see a prophecy about an event that has not yet even happened. But yet, it's written as if it already has. And so we can be confident, we can be sure that Christ is going to come again. Father, I thank you that as your children, we are going to escape the wrath to come. You're going to rapture us. You're going to remove us, Lord. We praise you for that. But Father, I pray for the ungodly. You know, at one time, Lord, we were ungodly, and yet you've saved us. And so, Father, while there is still time, I pray for the salvation of the ungodly. I pray, Lord, that you might rescue them. That, Father, they might come to that place of forsaking their sin, for confessing and repenting it, and placing their faith, their, their trust, their belief in the gospel of your dear Son. Lord, help us to walk with you. Help us to be in a fellowship with you. Help us to be in obedience to you so that we can enjoy the relationship with you. Father, as we look at our lives, we confess there are always things that are lacking. There's always areas to work. But Father, I pray as we've looked at some of these areas that, Father, you might strengthen us in them so that we might be pleasing to you. And Father, if preventure someone listening looks and is not seeing any of these areas, but instead sees these charges as the norm in their life, that Father, you might convict them now so that they can be saved before they're convicted at the end and damned for all eternity. We pray this in your Son's precious and holy name. Amen.